This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. Did you know that 95 million American adults are exploring scripture, many for the very first time? This is just one finding in the latest release coming from the American Bible Society's annual State of the Bible Report, which highlights cultural trends in the U.S. on spirituality and scripture engagement. What else did this report discover about the Bible in the American church? We're going to find out more now from Dr. John Plake, Director of Ministry Intelligence for the American Bible Society. John, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, thank you. You have just come out with your seventh chapter on the state of the Bible in America. Give us a little bit of an overview on this report and how you conducted the research. Well, back in January, we reached out to a representative sample of over 3,500 Americans from really every walk of life, every faith background in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. And we really wanted to find their perspectives on the Bible, on faith, and really on the events that are affecting their lives and on the church. And so we got a broad range of data that came to us, and we've been releasing bits of that information every month throughout the year. In this latest release, we really looked at the Bible in the American church and tried to understand to what degree is the Bible influencing people who call themselves Christians, and how do Christians in America really think about Scripture, and how does it influence their lives? Right. So you've got this 95 million number. This is this is a lot of people who are exploring Scripture. Is that up? Is that a rise since the previous time you took a look at these kinds of numbers? It is. We've been looking at Scripture engagement, kind of thinking of it in, two, in three categories. We have a, a group of people in America that is honestly the majority that really don't look at Scripture at all. We call them Bible disengaged. And these are people who, unless it's by accident, maybe they're at a wedding or they're at a funeral or something, and they happen to encounter Scripture, they don't really interact with it much. Hmm. Then on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have people that we call Scripture engaged. And for the most part, Scripture engaged people are choosing to interact with the Bible, uh, often a week, uh, once a week or more on their own outside of church. And many of them at the upper end of that are really reading the Bible every single day, and it's guiding their choices and really shaping their relationships. But in the middle, there's this interesting group of people, we call them the movable middle, <laughs> and they're Bible test drivers. These are folks who, they're not daily Bible users, they're probably not weekly Bible users, at least not most of them, but they've had something happen in their lives that made them curious about Scripture, and so they've begun to pick it up, they've begun to reach out for Scripture, and what we've seen is that now that's 95 million Americans, and that is a 90% increase in the last four years. So it's really a huge increase, and all of those people are coming from the Bible disengaged, that lower category that doesn't really reach for Scripture much. So it's an interesting trend that we're keeping our eye on, and it's just fascinating to see how 
I think often in troubled times, when people are facing difficult circumstances, they begin to think back on the faith of their fathers and mothers, if you will, and wonder, does the Bible have some wisdom for me today? Right. Well, it makes sense. We've had a really lousy couple of years, and particularly with the pandemic. And if you did these numbers in January, that would explain. Did you go through any more detail on that, delving into why the people who were previously Bible disengaged decided to explore Scripture more? Did they cite the pandemic as one of the main reasons? You know, we didn't ask them in particular why you began to dig into Scripture. In a, in a big anonymous survey like that, sometimes it gets a little bit intrusive, but we did see some interesting correlations. So people who were experiencing more stress or who had had really close to home impacts from COVID-19, they also said that they had increased their use of Scripture more lately. Hmm. And we do think that uh, we also see this happening among millennials. So millennials are coming to an age of life where, you know, they're having children, um, their, their lives are changing, they're facing things they've never faced before. And so in the midst of stresses and and everyday life and COVID-19 and trauma and all of these issues, what we find is that when people are struggling, many of them do reach for Scripture. And that's when the story really begins to change. You know, we don't look at, at Bible people and find that they are experiencing less stress. Because you kind of think about that, stress comes from the outside. It comes from what's happening around you. And they actually don't experience less trauma either in their lives. In some ways, we think they maybe experience more trauma in their lives. But when they face those things, how they cope with them and the levels of hope that they have are completely different. The Bible's really bringing kind of hope and resilience to people who are facing the struggles that are common to all of us. This is interesting because I know you break down some of these categories when you draw the distinction between, for example, self-identified and practicing Christians, and you have kind of a spectrum of categories of Christians. Who are you talking about when you went and you talked to these 3,500 Americans across America uh, in all 50 states? You've got Catholics, you've got evangelicals. How did that break down who you're actually talking to when you were getting these numbers? Sure, we're actually talking to people of any and all faiths. So uh, we have probably 20 to 25 percent of our respondents say they have no particular faith affiliation. But uh, among those who identify as Christian, they may say that they're Catholic, they may say that they're Protestant, they may say they're just a Christian, and, and those labels don't you know, hold for them. Still, if they identify as Christian, they've attended a religious service at least within the last month and they strongly agree that their faith is important in their lives, then we call those people practicing Christians. And so there are self-identified Christians. You get this, right? There are people in America who say, I'm a Christian. And you say, well, what does that mean to you? And many of them don't know, or it means I'm not a Buddhist, or I'm not a Muslim, or, or, or I believe in God, you know, and I'm an American. And so there is that group of folks in the United States that kind of identify as Christian. Maybe they were baptized when they were a child. Maybe they were members of a church or their family had a church tradition, but they're not actually engaging with their faith. And so we call those people non-practicing Christians. And then the group of folks that says, well, I really don't have any tie to a Christian church at all, then those are non-Christians. So when we look at those three groups, it's really instructive 
to look at, you know, what's going on in their lives and how are they experiencing life and how are they interacting with Scripture? Yeah. Well, one other thing that you guys had posted online about what you discovered in this report was the proportion of American adults who never use the Bible has actually fallen to 29 percent, which is the lowest percentage since 2016. So on the one hand, you have the 95 million American adults exploring Scripture maybe for the first time as a 90 percent increase in the last four years. This other statistic is a fall, but in a good direction. Can you talk about that particular finding? Yeah, I mentioned earlier that the largest segment of Americans really um, doesn't have any relationship with the Bible at all. So I think there are people in the world who think, well, America is a Christian nation, or maybe in the community that you're from, you kind of feel like we're a Christian community. Uh, But for most of America, across a representative sweep of America, um, most people really don't have a relationship with Scripture. So we're talking 100 million or so American adults who are not meaningfully engaging with the Bible. They're not curiously exploring the Bible. They're just kind of the Bible's there. And so what we had seen in the last several years was that the percentage of Americans who say realistically they never read or listen to or interact with the Bible at all, that had been creeping up. But in January, we saw that correct back down, and it fell below 30% for the first time in the last few survey cycles. We do this survey every single January. We've done it for 11 years now. And so we're starting to get a sense of what's happening in America. And then in 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic really started locking down on America for the first time, we did a special edition of the survey in June to try and understand, well, how is COVID really impacting people? What are, how is it impacting people's faith, their relationship with the Bible, and is the Bible helping those who are hurting in America? Right. Now, all those things are very interesting because the pandemic has changed a lot of statistics and research data coming across a lot of spectrums. But on this particular subject, it's quite interesting because I wonder if this is pointing to a moment that the church can use to really bring people to Jesus Christ and take advantage of the fact that people are, who who may not previously have been interested in the Bible, opening it maybe for the first time. We're going to come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today, back with Dr. John Plake from the American Bible Society after this. The UN has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of 100 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? 
Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's always interesting to see how American adults are exploring scripture or not, but this is really interesting data coming out of the American Bible Society's State of the Bible report. They've just come out with their seventh chapter on the state of the Bible and looking into how the Bible is influencing people's lives. John, you and I were talking earlier about the fact that you've got all these people who had no engagement with the Bible at all. And now you see, even though that had been a number creeping down that they weren't interested in the Bible, now that is you know not interested in the Bible, those numbers are going down. In other words, you have more people who are engaging with the Bible. What I'm interested in a little bit is talking about the reasons. Now, I don't know to what extent you got into the reasons because you're interviewing 3,500 people on all these views. But primarily, did you discover that the reason or maybe the, the biggest reason people were turning to the Bible was because of personal problems and not necessarily interest in Christianity per se, interest in theology, interest in Jesus Christ, whether or not he really is the son of God. In other words, is it more self-interest? Not that that's a bad thing necessarily, but people who need hope as opposed to people who have theological questions. And that's why they're turning to the Bible. Did you see any evidence along those lines either way? You know, I think we have different groups of people in America. So when you talk about the Bible test drivers, this movable middle group of people, all of our data and all of our research say that when they initially start reaching for Scripture, it's a question that brings them to the Bible. Uh, Often they're facing something new in their life. Now, it might be new and difficult, like COVID-19 or grief or some struggle or difficulty, trauma or pain that they're facing. And so they're coming to Scripture and they're asking, does the Bible have help for me in this circumstance? At other times, it's... um, it's something more positive. I was riding in an Uber in Colorado Springs going to visit with a colleague of mine, and the gentleman who was driving the Uber uh, had no relationship with the Bible whatsoever. But he got into this conversation with me about, well, um, you know, I've got these young kids, and I want them to grow up to be good people. And he suggested the way he was doing that was by reading Grimm's fairy tales to them at night. <laughs> and uh, I kind of inwardly, I chuckled. I'm a Bible researcher, you know. And so I, I said, well, have you ever wondered if the Bible might have some wisdom for you as a parent or for your children as they grow up. And, you know, he wasn't off-put by that at all. He wasn't angry or or defensive. He just looked at me and said, no, I I never really considered it. And so there at the Hampton Inn, down by the Air Force Academy, uh, he 
pulled my luggage out of the back of the car, and I opened up my iPhone and showed him the Bible app by Version, and searched for parenting under the Bible reading plans and showed them to him and said, would this look interesting to you? And he's like, well, yeah. And right there, he kind of downloaded the Bible onto his phone and started pursuing answers to his questions. So nice. not to take too long with that answer, but just to illustrate the idea that people come to Scripture not because they privilege Scripture, not because oh, you know, it's this wonderful book. They don't know, many of them, the background of Scripture or how it's structured or how to find what they're looking for, but they do have a question. And so most Americans who begin exploring Scripture for the first time, they bring their questions to that quest. That is great. And I think you're right about that. There are a lot of people who are very Bible ignorant. They may never have set foot in a church or they may have never even encountered Christianity among people they've met. And so that's a great opportunity. I I found it interesting when you guys were quantifying the weekly Bible reading rates, you found them to be most common among practicing Christians who are evangelicals, 93%, which is a very high number, and also historically black Protestants and mainliners, 80%, which for some evangelicals, that might be a little surprising because they tend to look at mainliners as, man, that we don't know how much they're really interested in the Bible. But w- were those numbers higher than in previous State of the Bible reports that you guys have taken? You know, they're fairly consistent. Uh, what we find is that regardless of tradition, whether you're from an evangelical background or a mainline background, historically black or even Catholic background, the more engaged you are with your faith, the more likely it is that the Bible is part of that. Right. And uh, so they're picking up Scripture, they're searching for what it has to say, and there are different traditions around how to engage with Scripture. Do I do that on my own in my war room? Do I do that with a community of people who are helping me to understand? it. But, you know, one thing I would say is nobody needs to do their faith walk alone. And the church offers tremendous resources to help people understand Scripture and apply it to their day-to-day lives. So we don't just want people to be deeply rooted in God's Word, but also in a vibrant Christian community that can help them grow. Well, right. So this is a, a very important question. When you're seeing some of these encouraging statistics coming out of your research, that is a question for a lot of Christians and a lot of pastors who may be listening. What kind of opportunity do these numbers give the church to help connect these new people, you know, exploring the Bible maybe for the first time to the church? Because that's obviously the goal is you want people who are uh, reading God's word to learn more about it. Where better to go than to go to church? What are some of your thoughts on that, the challenge that might lie within uh, this situation in getting those Bible readers into an actual local church? I think the church really has three key opportunities that show up in the data. I think the first of them is there's a big group of Americans who are hurting for a variety of reasons, who are looking for hope and help. And if the church can help them, they're willing to listen to that message. Yeah. If the Bible has answers for them and hope for them, they're, they're open to it. The, the second is, I think, the next generation. Our data around Generation Z are really interesting because Gen Z is in some ways facing things that are typical to young adults, but in other ways, they're facing a brand new moment. None of us, when we were that age, uh, grew up with uh, Facebook and TikTok and uh, <laughs> And, you know, all of the social media kinds of engagements that are honestly not helping Gen Z 
feel good about themselves or about their future. Yeah. Um, those are spaces that we need to be stepping into and helping them engage with God's Word and find a longer-term perspective. And then the third thing is I think everybody's looking to take their next step with God. You know, we're, we're all on a journey. We're all at different places in our journey with God, but there's a next step for everybody. And I think that if we could help people take their next step, give them the biblical resources that they need to grow a little bit, to maybe pray more, to sense God's presence more, to hear his voice more, that people would be open to that and would respond to that. So those are three key things that show up in the data that point us to reaching out to others with good biblical answers. Yeah, for sure. You, you mentioned Generation Z and how online they are all the times. The pro- problems of social media have been well-researched and, and discussed. But does this indicate to you at all, John, that there needs to be a higher level of Bible presentation, whether or not it's Bible apps or Bible study materials online? Or should it be more that we try to get Gen Z offline so that they can grow in their faith? What I mean, is there any sense that you have that one is better than the other or that we have to do both? I think I'm always in favor of using wisdom in how we engage with online and social media. Um, I, I think there are some risks to people across the age spectrum. That said, I grew up in the country and we had a saying, that it's uh, not really all that effective to close the barn door after the horse has already left. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, I I think the horse has left the barn in this case. Uh, People are online, people of all ages and generations. And I think there's a real innovation opportunity. And just like Johannes Gutenberg took the Bible and made it available in a language that people could understand and made it available to everyone through movable type, we're now in a technological age when we can take the wisdom of Scripture and we can deliver it to where people are, to where they're searching for answers. We can provide those answers in those digital spaces and then invite them from where they are to where they can be with God. And so that's really the contextualization chore that we have as the church and as people of God to invite others to come from where you are to where you can be. Very good. One other thing that I noticed was you found that more than half of self-identified Christians in the United States are not actively practicing their faith. That's an awful lot of people, and clearly there are a lot of different categories of people within that statistic. Are these people who go to church at all? Are they just cultural Christians? What is the church to do about those people who say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not actively practicing my faith? Clearly, you want more of those people to be engaged with God's word. What are some opportunities that the church has in that regard? One of the interesting things is that the culture is kind of shedding its historical cultural connection to the church. Now, that's not to say there aren't just as many Bible-believing, born-again, if you will, deeply committed practicing Christians as there ever were. That number hasn't changed much, but the feel, the zeitgeist of the culture has shifted some. And so I think what that means is for us as Christians and for the church, we need to be reaching out to our friends and neighbors and inviting them to explore Scripture with us, to share how God is helping us. And as we invite others into 
the exploration of Scripture and the exploration of faith. I really believe that many self-identified Christians are going to become practicing Christians. We really do have an opportunity to welcome them back, but we'll have to be answering their questions and meeting their needs with biblical resources to do that. Well, right. And engaging with Scripture, ideally, the more you're reading the Bible, the more you're studying the Bible, the better off you are. Would you like to see those numbers get even larger, not just exploring Scripture, but people going deep into Scripture? Is that something that you guys have taken a look at, too? Absolutely. Depending on the kind of church that you might attend, 30 to 50 percent of the people sitting next to you on a given Sunday or logging in with you to the online service, 30 to 50 percent of them are not currently deeply engaging with Scripture. And so we've lost in many cases the discipleship moment, that training to help people understand, well, how do I read Scripture, and how do I understand it, and how does it apply to my life? And so that's where those small groups of people who get together and study God's Word and pray together and really live out their faith in not just a ritual, but in a vibrant Christian community. That's really what's transformational in people's relationship with God through the Bible. Very good. Well, you can check out more at AmericanBible.org, the website for the American Bible Society, where Dr. John Plake serves as Director of Ministry Intelligence. Thank you so much, John. It was great to have the update. Keep up the good work, and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Janet. God bless you. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, one would have thought when Russell Moore left the Southern Baptist Convention to go to Christianity Today that perhaps his media strategy would come to an end. Nah, <laughs> no. Why would that happen? Why would that happen? We have Big Eva for a reason, folks. Russell Moore, Beth Moore, Ed Stetzer, all those people out there in Big Eva, they just love the media, the leftist media. They don't like Fox. They think Fox pushes conspiracy theories and will tell you so. But they love the Atlantic. They love the New York Times. They love the Washington Post. How much was Russell Moore and company able to leverage the the goodwill of their friends over at those leftist outlets for their own purposes during his entire tenure and, and their time and, and their posts in evangelicalism to try to change the narrative. And mainly it's never Trump. And then it became you know, conservative Christians are evil. And I hate the word evangelical and, you know, all the different things that they've been pushing over the last several years. I mean, I'm glad he's at Christianity today, but the, the, the horror stories continue. So a couple of articles to serve comment, one in the Atlantic by Pete Weiner. This guy is just insufferable. It's a whole long piece. It's called Trump is tearing apart the evangelical church. 
give me a break. The left has been tearing apart the evangelical church. And the first anecdote with which he starts out has to do with David Platt, who's the minister at McLean Bible Church out in the D.C. area. He's been as woke as woke can be. And they're basically painting, Wayner, I should say, is painting the picture as David Platt and others have been experiencing the horrors of Trump voters and all of these aggressive and disruptive and unforgiving people who are all about evangelical conservative politics. Now this is destroying churches like McLean Bible Church. Give me a break because that's not even true. And it's actually a lie because I know what happened at McLean Bible Church and a lot of people who have been following this story and watching what's unfolded through the narratives of the people who love and have been members of that church for years can tell you that the problem at McLean Bible Church has been David Platt. It hasn't been the people who have been faithful Christians sitting in the pews for years. It's it's just outrageous. Here's a little bit of what they say. Wayner, I should say. The election of the elders of an evangelical church is usually an uncontroversial, even unifying event. But this summer at an influential megachurch in Northern Virginia, something went badly wrong. A trio of elders didn't receive 75% of the vote, the threshold necessary to be installed. David Platt said a small group of people inside and outside this church coordinated a divisive effort to use disinformation in order to persuade others to vote these men down as part of a broader effort to take control of this church. Platt said church members had been misled, having been told, among other things, that the three individuals nominated to be elders would advocate selling the church building to Muslims who had converted into a mosque. In a second vote, all three nominees cleared the threshold, but that hardly resolved the conflict. Members of the church filed a lawsuit claiming that the conduct of the election violated the church's constitution. Now listen to this little line. Platt who is theologically conservative, had been accused in the months before the vote by a small, small, but zealous group within his church of wokeness, of wokeness and being left of center. He was accused of pushing a social justice agenda and promoting critical race theory and of attempting to purge conservative members. A Facebook page and a right-wing website have targeted Platt and his leadership. And for his part, Platt, speaking to his congregation, described an email that was circulated claiming NBC is no longer McLean Bible Church. It's now Melanin Bible Church. Whose fault is that, David Platt? It was your fault. What happened at McLean Bible Church, The Atlantic says, is happening all over the evangelical world. Influential figures such as the theologian Russell Moore and the Bible teacher Beth Moore felt compelled to leave the SBC. Both were targeted by right wing elements within the SBC. I, you know what? Wad it up and throw it into the, the nearest fireplace because that is not what happened. They were not targeted by right wingers. These people came into the church and they went woke and they started slamming us for the last better part of a decade. These people have been out there slamming us more in particular, Russell Moore in particular. And Beth Moore got on the woke train and David Platt got on the woke train. David Platt was the one, if memory is serving me correctly, who made sure that the church wasn't open during the pandemic, but he was going to be out on the streets marching, marching for racial justice at a time when Christians couldn't go to church. So all of these woke people, we have long memories. We remember what you actually did during the pandemic. You worship the state. 
You worshipped the authority of the state and you took verses out of context in order to do it. And we won't soon forget. I go back also to this piece at Newsbusters. And you can read this. This was from August 10th of this year. McLean Bible Church is fighting back against radical pastor David Platt. And it says here, it was clear from the beginning that Platt would be bringing a political agenda with him while he was preaching the gospel, meaning when he came on board at the church. Over the past four years that he has been at the church, there have been multiple cases of his personal biases creeping into his sermons. Platt recorded a series of episodes on the issues of race and justice with videos named, What is Your Earliest Memory of Being Aware of Your Race as Defined in American Society? That that central Bible concern of when did you become aware of your race? Yeah, straight out of the pages of Scripture. Recently, disgruntled members of the church have begun speaking out against Platt and his woke leadership. The Facebook group Save McLean Bible Church states that the congregation is witnessing corruption, lack of transparency, deception, slandering, intimidation, and use of the pulpit to bully members of the church. That's exactly what's been happening. Posts on the page also revealed that the church is listed on the Southern Baptist Convention's website, despite the NBC's constitution prohibiting affiliation with a specific denomination. Oh, but it's all the conservatives' fault. David Platt is a golden boy of biblical fidelity, while these horror shows of little, you know, little roach people who who are in these churches and bothering these big names who are just trying to be theologically conservative. I get so tired of it. And yes, there was sarcasm sarcasm in my voice because I'm sick and tired of average Christians, normal people who are trying to work at their jobs to the glory of God and raise their families to the glory of God and stand on the word of God that they are reading and studying and trying to faithfully adhere to what the Lord has called them to do. And they go to church, sometimes churches they have been in for decades, and they're encountering these little woke punks who are trying to hijack the Bible and hijack these congregations built on the blood, sweat and tears of people who have been in those churches for years and destroy them from within. And this was a calculated attempt by these guys to do it. It's not just Platt. You think of what happened at First Baptist Church of Naples, Florida, and how J.D. Greer got involved and they tried to make sure that they got their guy as the pastor of that church. It's a horror show what they did to those people. It's disgusting what they did to those people. And they fought back. They tried to paint the whole church as a bunch of racists because they didn't want to hire a man who didn't meet the qualifications for the job that were stated and laid out. They didn't want to hire somebody who was woke. It didn't have anything to do with the color of his skin. Nothing. You know what? They wouldn't have elected somebody as as the, the pastor of the church who was woke of any color. It had nothing to do with the fact that he was black. But... Oh, no, we have to come up against these people. You wonder why the Southern Baptist Convention is in disarray, why you have the former head of the executive committee, Pastor Mike Stone, suing Russell Moore. You know, and I was talking to a friend about this recently, that whole issue of suing a brother and going back to 1 Corinthians 6. Here's the thing Paul never said in 1 Corinthians 6, that if you are wronged by somebody in the church, you should just turn the other cheek and just be wronged. He actually says in that passage, you shouldn't be suing each other because why would you bring worldly people into the mess? Rather, you should have the church deal with it. Well, what is Mike Stone supposed to do? 
Who, who in the Southern Baptist Convention is going to litigate or solve what Russell Moore did to him with the defamation and, and saying there was a sexual abuse problem and Mike Stone didn't care and dragging his name through the mud? And how convenient that Russell Moore, at the tail end of everything that he did to Mike Stone, leaves the denomination. Well, that's a convenient way to never have to have any accountability, isn't it? Because when Russell Moore leaves the denomination, you can't do a Matthew 18 process, either at his church or Mike Stone's church. So what Moore did was he neutralized the ability of anybody to be able to go back after him and right any wrong that was done to them as he happily exited and and made his way toward Wheaton. Congratulations, Russell Moore. Listen, it is not the average Christian in the average faithful biblical church dealing with woke pastors who's at fault here, Pete Wayner. The fault lies with your friends, the woke elitists trying to take over too many of our churches and institutions and seminaries and Bible colleges and universities. We're on to you and we're not going to give up saying so. And there's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Boy, I get tired ranting, but isn't there a lot to rant about? There really is. I'm, I'm just so tired of these people who do, they don't, they want to be woke. They want to tur- turn the church woke. They want to take all conservative evangelicals with them. And when they don't go, then they're insulted. And then they get their friends at the Atlantic to smear them. Now we have another article by Ryan Burge. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. He's a Baptist pastor. Uh, it ties to the Moore crowd. 
He wrote a guest essay at the New York Times, Why Evangelical is Becoming Another Word for Republican. Okay. <sighs> what do you even say to this? Uh, before I get to this article, I want to do a little divergence here because when we're talking about what these elitists are doing to our churches, here's an example of this. Megan Basham over at the Daily Wire wrote a piece, Neither Vaccinated Nor Unvaccinated, How Churches Imposing Vaccine Mandates Are Dividing Christians with a Different Gospel. And as Exhibit A, she references the church that Tim Keller founded, the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, you know, Tim Keller. Uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City back in July she writes, quietly posted a statement to its website regarding service attendance. In part, it says this, individuals who are fully vaccinated are welcome to sit on the main floor of the sanctuary without social distancing and masks will be optional. Individuals who are not fully vaccinated are welcome to sit in the balcony. Now, what do you see wrong with that? What do you see wrong with that strategy? And of course, it's not the only church that's doing this. Now we have vaccine segregation in churches, these woke churches. Is that okay with you? Because I go back to James chapter two and the whole sin of partiality. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Good question, because that's exactly what's being done here. If you're vaccinated, you're special. You get to sit on the main floor of the sanctuary. You're unvaccinated. Sorry, pal, you're banished to the balcony. How do you have any biblical justification for vaccine discrimination? It, it's so insane. You hardly even know how to articulate an argument against it because it's so blatantly evil and wrong. First of all, there is no evidence that the vaccinated are more protected from contracting COVID-19 than the unvaccinated, because we've seen a lot of people who have had COVID-19 who have been fully vaccinated and even died in the case of Colin Powell and others as well. So that's not doing anything. And you don't have any evidence from science that the, vac the unvaccinated are posing any kind of greater threat to you as to the transmission of the virus than the vaccinated are. The whole thing is unscientific. But boy, they're going to shame you. It's like the Sneetches. I've been saying this for a while now. Do you remember the book, The Sneetches, Dr. Seuss? They've probably put that out of print, too, as being wrong. You know, cancel Dr. Seuss. But, you know, the stars, the star belly Sneetches were the great ones. And then the ones who didn't have stars were terrible. But then this guy came along with a machine and you could get stars put on your bellies. And then as soon as the unstarred Sneetches got the stars, then the starred ones didn't want them anymore. And, you know, it went from there. But I said, it's, it's like we're the Sneetches. We're the Sneetches in the church. You have to have a vaccination. If not, I don't know if we're going to be able to serve you. Would Jesus have done that? Would Jesus have made any distinction between people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated when it came to worshiping him, when it came to coming together to be part of the church of Jesus Christ? It's absurd. But we're supposed to take all of these critiques from the big Eva friends in the media and say, oh, we're the bad ones. We're the bad ones. Look, we're all sinners. We all have blind spots. We have 
all kinds of things that we should be critiqued for as conservative Christians. I'm not trying to hold up conservative Christians as blameless. We're not blameless. I'm not blameless. But we're not the villains that these people are constantly trying to portray us as. We're not villains. You're not a villain if you didn't get vaccinated. You have a a very good reason probably for not being vaccinated. And if you are vaccinated, fine. I've said this from the beginning. If you want to get vaccinated, great. If you don't want to get vaccinated, great. But every Christian ought to be on the side of not mandating vaccines. And every Christian ought to be on the side of standing against a church that would separate the vaccinated from the unvaccinated in violation of James chapter 2. So here's Ryan Burge's article. The conventional wisdom about religion in the U.S. is that the number of people who have no religious affiliation is rising rapidly. In the 1970s, secular Americans made up just 5% of the population. Now the number has climbed to at least 30%. The data suggests that religious groups must be suffering tremendous losses as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, continue to increase in size and influence each year. And that's why a recent report from the Pew Research Center came as a huge surprise. Its most shocking revelation was that between 2016 and 2020, there was no significant decline in the share of white Americans who identify as evangelical Christians. Instead, the report found the opposite. During Donald Trump's presidency, the number of white Americans who started identifying as evangelical actually grew Wait a minute. Russell Morris is held no, no longer call himself an evangelical. He must be really irritated by this. Conservative Christians celebrated the news <clears throat> for years. Stories have appeared in media outlets about how many of the more theologically moderate denominations like Episcopalians and the United Church of Christ have suffered staggering losses in membership. Theologically moderate. <laughs> I mean, this is like calling Obama a political moderate. Okay, Bernie Sanders, the politically moderate Bernie Sanders, the politically moderate AOC. (laughs) If the Episcopal Church and the United Church of Christ are moderate, who in the heck is on the left? I would just like that. So this tells you where this guy's coming from. The fact that denominations that allowed women pastors were declining while evangelical churches that took more conservative positions on views of gender and sexuality were holding their own was evidence for evangelicals that conservative religion has staying power. But they might hold off on patting themselves on the back too much. Okay, Who's patting themselves on the back? Why would anybody pat themselves on the back? They might say, praise the Lord. Why would they pat themselves on the back? He says the number of self-identified evangelicals has likely not increased over the last few years because evangelicals have been effective at spreading the gospel and bringing new converts to the church. What is drawing more people to embrace the evangelical label on surveys is more likely that evangelicalism has been bound to the Republican Party. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) More people calling themselves evangelical. It has to be because of Trump because it's always because of Trump. More likely, it's the fact that evangelicalism has been bound to the Republican Party, and that's why more people are calling themselves evangelicals. No, maybe they're just sick and tired of being told that evangelical is a bad label, like your friend Russell Moore, Ryan Birch. Maybe that's what people are reacting to. Maybe people are coming to Christ for the first time. Maybe more people are coming to evangelical churches that aren't woke and hearing the gospel and getting saved. I don't know. He says, instead of theological affinity for Jesus Christ, millions of Americans are being drawn to the evangelical label because of its association with the GOP. They are. He says it's happening in two different ways. The first is that many Americans who have begun to embrace the evangelical identity are people who hardly ever attend religious services. Okay, but 
Well, they should go to church. Maybe they don't have a good church in their town because they have too many woke pastors. You know, there's never any nuance here. It's just, I have a narrative and I'm going to bludgeon you with it. People are becoming evangelicals and people are not leaving evangelicalism because Trump. That's the story and I'm sticking to it because I don't have anything else. Uh, memo, memo to Ryan Burge and company. Um, Trump's not the president anymore. And I recognize that you're going back to data that was mined from a time when Trump was president, but you guys got to get over it because at this point it's looking pathetic. It's looking pathetic. It really is. They never do anything wrong. Nobody on their side ever had a bad thought, never made a wrong prognostication, never unjustly went after fellow Christians who were not Democrats. It's exhausting. The second factor bolstering evangelicalism on surveys is that more people are embracing the label who have no attachment to Protestant Christianity. The share of Catholics who also identified as evangelicals rose to 15% in 2018 and 9% in 2008. That same pattern appears with Muslims. (laughs) What? What are you even talking about? (laughs) Muslims are evangelicals and it's Trump's fault. (laughs) You understand? You get it? Okay. Just so you know, We have a whole host of evangelical Christian Muslims, and this is Trump's fault, right? Write it down in your diary, put it in a letter, send it to grandma or send it to your grandkids so they can go to this point in history and preserve it forever for future generations who said, what is an evangelical Muslim? You you can't read this stuff with any seriousness. The only thing you can do is properly wad it into a ball and throw it into the fireplace, which I intend to do when I get off the air. But that means I have to make a fire. Maybe I'll just wad it up and put it in the trash can. How about this? That sounds good, doesn't it? There it is. Now it's gone. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. God bless you for being here. And we hope you will join us next time here on Janet Meffer Today. Thank you so much for listening. This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.